Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. If you have a project or publication that you would like to discuss on the podcast, I will be delighted to hear from you. You can email me on press at westernassociation.com. It is the 7th of August 2017 and this is episode number 26. It is holiday time and we are taking a seasonal break for the next two weeks. Until we resume our normal round of podcast interviews, I will share with you some of the talks given to the Antrim and Down branch of the WFA over the last few months. This is the branch I co-chair in Belfast. In this episode, Professor Richard Grayson from Goldsmiths, University of London, talks about Beyond the Somme, West Belfast Somme Service in Context. This talk was delivered to our Somme conference in October last year. I hope you enjoy it. Beyond the Somme, West Belfast Somme Service in Context. Uh, This comes out of uh, this book, Belfast Boys, which was published incredibly now seven years ago um, in hardback and a year later in um, paperback, but it keeps on selling and I keep being asked to speak about it. Um, Some of this will have heard before, some of you I know, I recognise the faces, Uh, some of it it you won't, so I hope there's something new for everybody. Um, I really hated the subtitle when the publishers came up with it. I just thought it was far too long. Uh, It did, to some extent, uh, sum up what the book was trying to do. Not because I went in with that agenda. When I first launched this book, I had people sort of stand up and say, what's your agenda? Actually use those words. Are you trying to suggest that... Have you gone out to try and... Uh, rewrite what happened in the war. Well, I tell you, I started off intending to write a history of the 9th Battalion of the Royal Irish Rifles, based on some statistics that were incredible, uh, which turned out to be untrue, uh, which I'll mention later. Um, It then became, after a conversation with a publisher, uh, a book about the 6th Connaught Rangers uh, and the Ninth Royal Irish Rifles, and that was basically what I signed up, signed the contract to do, a sort of parallel story of men from the Shankill in the Ninth Rifles and, and men from the uh, Fools in the Sixth Connaught Rangers. And, um, however, uh, in the very early stages of the research, I did a piece on uh, Radio Ulster, just asking for people to come forward with stories of men from the Fools in the Shankill, and lots of interesting stories came in, uh, and unfortunately, none of them were for the 9th Royal Irish Rifles uh, at all the 6th Connaught Rangers. And I thought, hmm, interesting. So there were men from West Belfast serving elsewhere. And I had a conversation with Keith Jeffrey. Um, as Tim said uh, this morning, much missed and hugely influential on so many people's work. And uh, in a previous academic life, I'd done a lot of research on uh, newspapers for um, conference records from par- political party conferences in the interwar years. And I knew that newspapers were often overlooked as, as historical sources. And so I decided that I would begin the research with a newspaper trawl, just looking for 
everybody I could find from West Belfast, uh, regardless of which unit they served in. Now, one of the first things I had to do was define... Oh, what have I... Oh, sorry, that's the wrong button. I was define what uh, I mean by West Belfast. And what I mean by West Belfast what, uh, in the book is not what we would mean West Belfast to be now, but it was based on a very different geography and a different politics of the time. Um, there's obviously a very uh, clear definition of West Belfast, which is a parliamentary constituency. The trouble with that is that then as now, the um, parliamentary constituency of West Belfast had one of its dividing, one of its boundaries is the Shank Hill Road. So that means a whole load of roads off the Shank, one side of the Shank Hill, clearly West Belfast, are not, legally speaking, West Belfast. But I, I drew a boundary based on <coughs> a lot of discussions with people that really use the Crumlin Road as one side. This is clearly all the Shank Hill, even though it's in North Belfast. Um, it comes uh, right down to the railway line because this area, some of that's Greater Village, we, think of, we would very much think of that as South Belfast now, by work as much as anything else. It was much more connected to the west of the city right up to the 1960s. Uh, what changed in the 60s and 70s was, of course, this line, which, isn't there, which wasn't there, but it's the West Link. And that divided a lot of working-class terraced housing uh, in this sort of area from West Belfast. But I drew the line right into the city centre because that was how the housing areas went. Um, it goes further out to Andersonstown here. Uh, that's all I'll, I'll, I'll say about the area, but very happy to take uh, questions. Orange and green are just marker pens, by the way. There's no significance. Orange is the broader outline, and green it signifies with boundaries. Um, say that in England, and nobody knows what you're talking about. Uh, West Belfast was very different in 1914 uh, than it is now. Uh, in particular, the population was much more mixed, uh, as it would be until the Troubles began. 17% of the population of Falls Ward were Protestant. Um, that's why you have Broadway Presbyterian Church there, because there were Protestants needing churches. It's now culture land, uh, because there aren't Protestants needing churches in the Falls. 7% of Shankill Ward was Roman Catholic. Um, and when did you ever think you would hear the phrase Anderson's Town Ulster Volunteer Force? But there was one in 1914 because the area was very, uh, was very different then. Now, I think any story of uh, West Belfast's SOM service in context needs to pay some attention to, uh, to the home front. Uh, of course, there are lots of stories um, of news from the Somme coming back and shutters and blinds going down and that sort of thing. But there's a different side to the home front, not just the impact of military losses, but also what uh, women in particular were doing uh, at Mackey's, uh, producing over the course of the war 75 million shells. Uh, there were 
uh, linen uh, mills later uh, making fabric for aircraft, for example. So there's a, uh, there's a side of the home front, a in very industrial side of the home front, um, that, that goes on in West Belfast. That's not been my main interest, however. My main interest has been the military side. And when we look at that, we are confronted, I think, with some very, very strong uh, popular narratives. Uh, narratives that people here will probably all be familiar with. Narratives which have a place on the streets of Belfast, for example, in murals that are displayed uh, in loyalist areas. Absolutely the strongest part of that narrative is the Ulster Volunteer Force enlisting in the 36th Ulster Division and especially for, uh, for West Belfast, especially in the 9th Royal Irish Rifles, which will have in many publications and uh, certainly newspaper reports of the time, it will say 9th Royal Irish Rifles, brackets, West Belfast Volunteers. <coughs> you also have the National Volunteers enlisting in the 16th Irish Division after uh, John Redmond had fully backed the British war effort and called on his uh, supporters to enlist um, in his speech Wooden Bridge in County Wicklow in late September 1914. Um, I think there's sometimes a perception that the 16th Division was a nationalist equivalent of the 36th. It's not even remotely formed from the volunteer, National Volunteers in the same way as the Ulster Volunteer Force. It's really only 47th Brigade, uh, which recruits heavily among the National Volunteers. Um, but in Belfast, both the 6th Connaught Rangers and uh, the 7th Leinster, Staniforth's uh, unit, um, as an officer, although he was in, in the 6th um, uh, Connaughts as an enlisted man, Heather mentioned him, uh, earlier, um, that draws very heavily on, on West Belfast nationalists and indeed nationalists from across the city. That story has become known, I would say, since the publication of um, Terry Denman's book, uh, Ireland's Unknown Soldiers, about the 16th Division, um, also the Ireland Divide uh, Peace Tower at Messine. Uh, and I think more particularly uh, in Belfast, really over the last 10 years, with the work of the 6th Connaught Rangers Research Project, which draws, on, which draws on people from a very broad nationalist background, including some former um, Republican prisoners. So the range of people who uh, have taken an interest in this, uh, in this story is quite significant. Another aspect of the local narrative is of the Ulster Division suffering heavy losses on the first, first day of the Battle of the Somme. And so this leads to um, a mural which is now gone, but which I photographed and used in, uh, in Belfast Boys. This leads to a narrative which allows loyalists to present, loyalists today to present, uh, signing the Covenant, joining the UVF, serving in the British Army, uh, in the First World War on the Somme 
and then joining the UVF again in the mid to late 1960s. There's that clear narrative in which um, service in two very different UVFs is seen as the same as service in the, uh, in the British Army, and the Somme is the centrepiece of the blood sacrifice of that. Most recently, uh, the last 20 years or so, we've had another part of the narrative which is about the 16th and 36th divisions fighting uh, side by side at Messines in June 1917. Um, this is one of those myths um, that historians have generally not challenged because it's been used for good purposes, for peacemaking, but I did write an article in the British Journal of Military History um, last year or year before pointing out that if two divisions serve side by side, only one side of each meets. They do have other divisions to the side of them. And of course, you're fundamentally, your experience in serving in a battle situation is not with the division alongside you. It's probably only with your own company or a much smaller group than that. But if not, it's your, it's your own battalion, brigade and division. So I think there's a lot of problems with that story, um, but we generally, uh, we generally leave it alone, uh, and I'm not going to say anything more about it, uh, about it today, unless people want to talk about it. Now, um, the uh, Luftwaffe caused me some problems uh, in the early stages of my research, um, before I'd even thought of it, in fact, um, because they bombed the Arnside Street Repository in 1940, um, destroying... Uh, probably around two-thirds of the uh, ordinary soldiers' records. So your, your key source for finding out every man from West Belfast who had served in the war um, was two-thirds destroyed. And um, therefore, in constructing what became a very substantial database, the numbers of which I'll mention in a moment... I had to draw on, I've already mentioned newspapers, um, I drew on the pensions and service records, but I then tried to patch together the database by using a very wide range of other sources, some of them of quite limited use, um, but there are occasionally parish roles, there's the wonderful 14th Royal Irish Rifles nominal role, which has name, address and uh, religious denomination on it. Uh, there are things like the Wills Index, the Irish Wills, around 1,500 of those uh, for Belfast as a whole of the 10,000 or so on there. Um, but it was often the newspapers that uh, revealed the most interesting information. Um, I used several. Uh, I used um, Telegraph, uh, Newsletter, Irish News. I sampled... Northern Whig, but found that the data that I was finding in there just repeated material I had uh, from the other three newspapers. Telegraph included um, uh, material from, uh, uh, sorry, Telegraph included photos, the others didn't, but broadly you're after this sort of information which will give you a name, um, a specific unit. Uh, roughly until the middle of 1916, when, at which point they only refer to the regiment, um, uh, uh, an address uh, and what's happened to them. Uh, usually this is going to be killed, wounded or taken prisoner, or winning a medal actually, that features quite prominently. 
So I constructed a database um, which found uh, around 8,500 men from West Belfast as a whole who had served. Uh, the range I have there is simply because some records might be duplicates. So if I find J. Wilson, 22 Enfield Street, in some different sources, is that James and John? Are they the same person? Who knows? Um, sometimes you can work it out, sometimes you can't. Uh, I think 8,500 is a fairly safe figure. If all my records that might be duplicates are, then the lower figure applies, and if none of them are, equally unlikely, then the higher, then the higher figure applies. I found um, at least 2,002 were killed, possibly another 159, but I would be very doubtful about all of those. They are men who were reported as dead in the newspaper, but whose deaths I've not been able to verify, either with the Wargraves Commission or, um, uh, or with Soldiers Died. Um, there were another half a dozen or so who were reported dead but weren't, and I was able to verify that they had in fact been taken prisoner. They were presumed dead for a while. But we're talking of around 2,000 dead um, across the whole of West Belfast. Um, and because of missing records, and you know, uh, once you know how many individuals you can only find in the service and pensions records, and you know that that's only about a third of what there were, you can speculate that there's probably um, another uh, three and a half thousand or so. Um, these figures were taken to task in a review uh, by um, uh, somebody who won't be mentioned uh, in Irish economic and social history. Um, his figures, however, were wrong, uh, and I responded to this in a footnote uh, in an article I later wrote in War, War, in, His, War in History. So any, and in fact, I pointed out that my 12,000 figure, he thought it was nearer 10. Uh, my 12,000 figure is very conservative. It's probably nearer 13 uh, than 12. So um, it's around 60% of men aged 18 to 40, um, which is a significant proportion, and it marks West Belfast out as being unusual. Um, very unusual compared to some parts of Ireland. Now, uh, I've used the phrase West Belfast. Uh, if I had longer, there's a lot I could say about the 16th Division on the Somme in September 1916. Um, but uh, a lot of that would just be familiar to people. And I want to focus on aspects of the Shankill, which, which is where I think I have some more challenging things to say, uh, both from Belfast boys and some later work. Now, actually, before you read, before you look at I said to you that my book originally began intending to be a story of the Ninth Royal Irish Rifles, based on a statistic. And the statistic was this. And I first came across it when I was on holiday over here uh, in 1999. Uh, this uh, is the thing on the picture on the right is a tourist information board. It's outside the Shankill Memorial Garden, but this narrative was on display, uh, and that board's quite recent. The narrative was on display at Fernhill House when it was uh, when it was a loyalist museum, and that was what I was visiting. <coughs> and it said, during World War One, members of the UVF who'd been instrumental in resisting Home Rule, joined the 36th Ulster Division, 
Almost an entire generation of Shankill men was wiped out on 1st of July 1916 at the Battle of Somme. Of the 760 men who fought for the regiment, only 76 returned. And I thought, well, incredible, that's a 90% fatality rate. I've got to write that story. Um, first problem in the language is use of the term regiment. It's clear from other stuff on the board that what they mean is battalion. They're talking about the Ninth Royal Irish Rifles. Um, first problem I struck was looking at soldiers died, Ninth Royal Irish Rifles. And um, there's something like 250, 260 men dead in the Ninth Royal Irish Rifles across the whole war. There's only about 100 dead there for the 1st of July. So I thought, mm, that's odd. This can't be a very good database. However, it's very accurate, uh, as is the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And um, I soon established that this narrative was based on uh, Crozier's memoirs, when he talks about um, starting the 1st of July with 760 West Belfast men, uh, and he talks about uh, only 70 or 80 of them remaining, remaining standing on the 3rd of July, the rest having gone west, and various phrases like that. And this has been misinterpreted over the years um, to mean that they were all killed. The other problem with this is that this talks about um, a number of 760 to the exclusion of anyone else who might have joined. And when you go into my figures, my 8,500, 6,400 of those are from the Shankill. So there weren't 760 men from the Shankill serving in the war. There were, there were well over 6,000. And there weren't 700 dead. There was twice that number. The difference is they're not all on the 1st of July in one, in one regiment, in one battalion. This is hugely challenging to a really central part of the Shankill's narrative of the war. Um, in saying that, I don't mean to suggest that the 1st of July 1916 was a good day for the Shankill. They lost, in the 9th Royal Irish Rifles and other formations of the Ulster Division, they lost um, at least 173 men on those two days, um, that's 13% of its entire war dead on 0.1% of the days of the war. So entirely understandable that this, that this date plays such a central part because, you know, what else would you remember if you want to remember one day? There's nothing else that can compare with this. Um, the Ninth Royal Irish Rifles loses 255 other ranks across the war, as I said. 8th, 9th, the Merge Battalion loses 44, um, and of those, 112 are on the 1st of July 1916. So the question then becomes, well, where are, where are the rest of these men serving if they're not serving in the 9th Royal Irish Rifles? Um, orange and green do mean something on here. Orange means the Ulster Division, green means the 16th Irish Division. First thing you'll notice is that these numbers don't even remotely add up to 8,500. That's because uh, 
take something like the Presbyterian Memorial Roll, which has a lot of names on it, a significant part of my database is from there, it almost always only tells you a regiment, um, not a battalion. And until the medal rolls were produced in a searchable format, which was after I'd done the book, um, it was hard to use those to find out battalions. But I think the... So this is where a battalion is mentioned. And I think this stands as a useful a sample, a useful snapshot. It's as good as, as, good as we're likely to get. Um, no surprise that the Ninth Royal Irish Rifles... Uh, had the most Shankill men serving in it that I could identify, 525 at least, some possible duplication. <coughs> There's a lot of men in parts of the Ulster Division that are not infantry, um, Royal Engineers, Army Service Corps, some in the artillery but not many because the artillery came from other places by and large, quite a lot in the 14th Royal Irish Rifles. But then we get to the units in, start to get to the units in black. Oh, I should say the 15th Royal Irish Rifles. Um, of course, that's North Belfast. But if you were on the north side of the Shankill, you were, in UVF organisational terms, in North Belfast. Um, so that's, that's why they have such a large number from the Shankill. But we then get to 2nd Royal Irish Rifles, 1st Royal Irish Rifles, 2nd Inniskillings, 1st Inniskillings... These, of course, are all the regulars and reservists. Working class area like West Belfast will, um, will produce regulars and reservists. Um, you then have the 6th Royal Irish Rifles in the 10th Irish Division, of course, and these would, uh, by and large, be men who were not necessarily keen to sit around waiting for big house unionism to set up the Ulster Division and wanted to join up quickly. So they joined the 10th Division before the 36th was formed. One result of that is you get UVF men serving at Gallipoli uh, far before the Ulster Division had gone into action on the, um, on the Western Front. Uh, so men are serving in different types of units for um, different reasons. We just think about, um, about that. There was some discussion in the Q&A about PALs and reference to Tim's thoughts on, on the Ulster Division uh, as a PALs unit. Keith Jeffrey said in his Ireland in the Great War book, um, the 36th Division is the closest that Ulster has to a PALs formation. And um, the UVF is absolutely central to that because of the way the Ulster Division is formed. But... There are many other men from West Belfast, from the Shankill, who are reservists, who decide to enlist before the Ulster Division is formed, who have a family connection to the South Lanx or something like that and want to join that regiment. Um, and we also need to remember that the, UV, that, sorry, that the Ulster Division was under strength at the end of 1914. So it takes in people from outside the immediate um, recruiting area, including... Uh, members of the artillery uh, coming in from London. Now, just to give you a couple of examples of what this means, uh, who are the reservists? Well, they're men like William Shearer. Um, reservists are men who are interested in military-type things. Who are the paramilitaries? To a certain extent, they're men who are interested in military-type things. 
And you get a crossover here in the case of Shearer, who's a member of the Ulster Volunteer Force in West Belfast, and also a reservist. So he gets called into the Second Royal Irish Rifles as soon as war breaks out. Um, and there's some family information about him and, and a picture. Serving with Shearer in the Second Royal Irish Rifles, and this is how the publishers get to justify the awfully long subtitle, How Unionists and Nationalists Fought and Died Together and so on, is Michael McGiven from the Falls. And Michael is a member of the Irish National Volunteers. So the types of men who were likely to join a paramilitary organisation, and by the way be quite senior figures in those organisations because they had some skills, they knew how to fire a rifle because they'd been on training, they knew how to drill, they often became the, the NCOs uh, in the paramilitary groups. They are thrown to the front in 1914 to serve together. If we... Um, go a bit further than this. After I'd published Belfast Boys, I, I realised I'd never asked myself the question, OK, of all the men from the UVF that uh, I've been able to identify from West Belfast, where did they all serve? What proportion were in the Ulster Division? And, um, and I've written this up for a book called Remembering 1916, which came out earlier this year. Uh, co-edited with, um, with Fergal McGarry. It's in Waterstones. There's the plug. I should have put the picture up there as well. But this is what, this what happened to the West Belfast UVF men that I identified. Now, first of all, 138 doesn't sound very many. That's because it's actually quite hard to identify who was in the UVF and who wasn't. Um, the Patriotic Fund records, if they're ever opened, would enable us to build up a database. That, that would be fantastic. Um, and you can, of course, inquire about individuals. But by and large, I was reliant on what the newspapers said. Now, the good thing about that is that actually the Telegraph and Newsletter were very keen to say if somebody was in the UVF because it was an important part of their biography and the Unionist newspapers wanted to say, look, this man is a loyal member of the UVF and he's now in the British Army. So you do get information. Of those 138, I found, um, I found over 60% of them in the Ulster Division. You'd expect that. And the largest number of those, 59 of the 85, were in the 9th Royal Irish Rifles. Um, but, interestingly there, um, I got a date of death for 28 of them. 24 of them weren't killed on the 1st of July 1916. Four were, 15 were killed before that, uh, one a week later, and eight in 1917. So if you're only thinking about what happens to the to men who join the UVF, the idea that they all join the Ulster Division and they're all slaughtered on the 1st of July is hugely problematic. Um, and there are other men, another 26, 21 infantry, five other units in the Ulster Division. Another eight, I, it's just really unclear. Uh, you just can't, they, you know, they'll be in, all you'll know is, for example, they're in the Royal Irish Rifles, but you can't find out a battalion, so they may or may not be in the Ulster Division. There's no embarkation date on their medal card to, to, give, you a, to give you a clue, or the, med, or the embarkation date is indeterminate. Let's, let's say they're all in the Ulster Division and we get towards about 70%. 
um, being in the Ulster division. But the other 32.6% are really interesting. 30 of them are in, in the regulars. <coughs> They're men already with some kind of service either in the Army Reserve or the Special Reserve and are called up as war breaks out. 15 in other units. Um, six are in the 10th Irish Division. We know that some men, uh, some UVF units joined the 10th Irish Division early on uh, because they wanted to get into action early on. <coughs> All those men went into the 6th Royal Irish Rifles. We've got seven in uh, a range of different units for whatever reason. You know, they may have been temporary in England when war broke out or in Scotland or what have you. Um, One's unknown, but not the Ulster Division. He's in a unit of the Royal Field Artillery that went to France well before the Ulster Division did, so I know he's not in that division. One, um, I found, had served in both the 10th Irish and the 16th Irish Divisions. So this UVF man ended up in John Redmond's Irish Brigade. Um, he was initially in the 6th Inniskilling Fusiliers, uh, it's hard to verify, but I assume that what happened is that at some point he was wounded and uh, somebody who didn't have much knowledge of these things said, oh yeah, he's in the Inniskillings, isn't he? Well, the 6th don't need any at the moment, but the 8th do, we'll send him there. And he ended up serving with the Irish Nationalists. So um, that story, I think, is just quite challenging. And it shows that actually the UVF story doesn't, begin and almost end on the 1st of July 1916. It covers the whole war and you see that with these two men. So the very first um, West Belfast man from the UVF killed uh, in the war. Uh, he was actually born in Portadown but he was living in March Street um, and he was killed first Royal Irish Fusiliers 22nd of over 1914. I'd love to see a mural about him. You know, that would be a different side of the story. And the last one, Robert Ray Bell, 16th Royal Scots, 11th of August, 1918. He's actually one of those men who's very much in what we would now think of as South Belfast. Um, but that, I think, just tells you the spread um, of, that, of that story. Um, some of this is about... Uh, challenging myths and I want to end with a confession um, which is to say that it can be very easy to teach myths only to find out things that challenge you later. When I've been giving talks for the last six or seven years I've often begun with this slide and I've said okay you're all thinking why does this guy with his English accent have any interest in men from West Belfast? Well it's because of these three people. Uh, the woman in the middle was my grandmother, Maud Powell, uh, who was born in Dromore in County Down and uh, uh, grew up in Lurg. The man on the right, Edward Grayson, was my grandfather, who um, was born uh, at Kinnego, just outside Lurgan. Uh, there's a marina there now on land that used to belong to the family. Um, the, fam the farm is still there, but, but, but we sold it in the 1960s. He served in the Royal Flying Corps and survived the war. The man on the left is really the most important in some ways. He's my great uncle, my grandmother's brother, James Powell, uh, killed in the second Royal Irish Rifles in September 1915. Now, I was often told about, uh, growing up, about um, 
family having served on the Somme in the war. And what I just used to say is, well, look, I grew up with that standard Unionist narrative. In fact, another part of the story was that six Grayson brothers went to Ulster in King William's army. So, you know, that's a very sort of core Unionist story. But I said that, you know, I was told they served on the Somme, but in fact, the only two people I've been able to verify, one was dead in September 1915, serving in the second Royal Irish Rifles, and the other one served in the Royal Flying Corps in 1917-18. So within a typical, two typical Unionist families, actually there was none of this typical service. However, 1st of July this year, I'm sitting in a hotel foyer uh, in France at about 3 in the morning, checking my email, uh, and I find an email from a relative who's read something that I'd written about uh, Great Uncle Jimmy and said, we're second cousins. Uh, I'm descended from another one of your grandmother's brothers, Uncle Charlie. Now, I had a talk of Uncle Charlie and Uncle Joe simply because my dad had said, I think my, I think my mother might have had another couple of brothers who served. Um, Uncle Charlie's the man at the top. And now I have the photo. Um, it turns out uh, Uncle Charlie uh, ran away to Belfast, enlisted underage in the 9th Royal Irish Rifles. He served on the Somme in the Ulster Division. He was captured in March 1918 at St Quentin, by which point he was serving in the 15th Royal Irish Rifles. Um, he survived the war. He lived, I think, until the 1960s. Um, I was then contacted a couple of months later by another descendant of Uncle Charlie, who it turned out had done even more research. He said, oh, yes, I know all that I've got, all, I can tell you the same stuff about Charlie. Um, I've also got some information on Uncle Joe. Uh, and that's Joe's medal card. Joe was gassed. He was serving in the 9th Royal Irish Fusiliers. Was he serving in the 9th Royal Irish Fusiliers? because before the war, he was a member of the Lurgan branch, Lurgan Battalion, of the Ulster Volunteer Force. So within the last few months, my great confidence at saying, here's a standard Unionist family, and I've been told about all this stuff about the Somme, but I can't find out anything about it, has suddenly been completely punctured by finding out that I had uh, a great uncle on the Somme serving in the 9th Royal Irish Rifles, and I had another one who'd been a member of the Ulster Volunteer Force. Um, so it just goes to show that um, academic historians possibly shouldn't be quite so confident about their findings sometimes. Thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>